Hi, New Hope. It's great to see all your faces today. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Those are the first two lines of the Apostles' Creed, which we've been exploring lately. It's an ancient summary of the Christian faith, and it continues to have lasting relevance for us today. It's an old document, but it's not outdated. (laughs) Not at all. Last week, I said that whenever we read the Apostles' Creed together, we are denouncing the many fake gods that compete for our allegiance in this world. And we're declaring allegiance to the living God. You See, this creed tells us that the living God is triune. He's three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, just as we sang a few moments ago. And this, this creed starts with these words. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. The fact that God is Father always has to come first. Before we think about the fact that he is the maker of anything, we must realize that he is the eternal father. That's why we looked at his fatherhood last week. Because after all, God was father long before he ever became maker. In order to be a maker, he had to make something. Creatures, worlds. But he was always the father to the eternal son, Jesus Christ. He became maker, God did, when he decided to make some things, when he decided to create. And I said last week also that every time we read the Apostles' Creed, we're also rejecting the predominant narratives of our day. Here's what I mean. For instance, we are rejecting the narrative of self-rule. You know what the narrative of self-rule tells us? That, That you are the ultimate authority over your life. You give yourself meaning and identity We reject that. We reject the narrative of of meaninglessness. Meaninglessness, which tells us that your life is pointless. No, we denounce that too. And we denounce every other false narrative too. And we declare together when we read this document our trust in the story that God is writing. His narrative that begins with creation and it ends with the resurrection and life eternal. The the recreation, it begins with creation and ends with the recreation of all things. That's the story we celebrate when we read these words. It's the Bible story, by the way. In fact, the Bible begins by telling us this, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth, that's Bible language for everything that is. the beginning of history, right there in those opening words of the Bible. In fact, it's not just the beginning of human history, it's the beginning of the the history of our world, of our universe. Listen to the great theologian J.I. Packer, who wrote a book that maybe many of you have have read or have started to read at points called Knowing God. J.I. Packer says, It is arguable how much or how little Genesis 1 and 2 tells us about the method of creation, whether, for instance, they do or do not rule out the idea of physical organisms evolving through epochs, thousands of years. What is clear, however, is that their main aim 
is to tell us not how the world was made, but who made it. You see that? From as early as the 4th century, Christians have talked about and debated and wondered whether those six days of creation laid out in Genesis are in fact meant to be read and interpreted as as six literal 24-hour periods. Or or, or are they they a a metaphorical way or, or, or a picture of longer epochs, eras over which God formed the world? But Packer points out that the purpose of Genesis is not to answer that question. Packer points out that the purpose of Genesis is not to lay out the science behind how the world was formed. That information needs to be gathered elsewhere, perhaps. And although it doesn't necessarily contradict what scientific research has shown us, its purpose is not to tell us exactly how, but who. Who. And, and, and the, the, what it tells us about the how is simply this. Not the exact mechanisms and, and processes that led to the world being what it is now. What we do know is this, though. The creation of the world was by God's choice, God's will, God's word. Without God, there is nothing. He is the originator. The genesis, the origins of everything we see around us is him. His word. He spoke the word, the world into existence. That's what Genesis 1 tells us. Psalm 8 tells us that with his fingers, again, it's, it's a metaphorical language, right? He, he placed the stars in place. Packer goes on to say this. He says, the message of these two chapters is this. It's a kind of a long quote, but I think it's really interesting. So please read along with me. He says, here's the message of these two first chapters of the Bible. Quote, You've seen the sea, the sky, the sun, the moon, and stars. You've watched the birds and the fish. You've observed the landscape, the vegetation, the animals, the insects, all the big things and the little things together. You've marveled at the wonderful complexity of human beings with all their powers and skills and the deep feelings of fascination, attraction, and affection that men and women arouse in one another. It's fantastic, isn't it? Well, now, meet the one who's behind it all. As if to say, now that you have enjoyed these works of art, you must shake hands with the artist. Since you were thrilled by the music, we will introduce you to the composer. It was to show us the creator rather than the creation, and to teach us knowledge of God rather than knowledge of physical science. That Genesis 1 and 2, along with such celebrations of creation as Psalm 104 and Job 38 to 41, were written. See, the point is to introduce us to the the majestic creator. The world speaks of a creator the way that a, a painting speaks of a painter. The way a song speaks of a songwriter. It reveals traits about the artist, right? You hear a song, it tells you something about the person behind that song. A story tells you something about the writer, doesn't it? Maybe it reveals their genius or their perspective. Art always tells us something about the the character or the heart, the, the inner life of the artist. 
and so it is with creation. That means that the mountains, the trees, the sky tell us something about who God is. It also means you and me look closely enough at the works of art sitting next to you and you will learn something about the God who made that masterpiece. By the way, if God is creator, then we shouldn't be surprised that some of the stories that we write and tell, they often echo the story that God is writing. Have you ever noticed this? G.K. Chesterton, many years ago, wrote about uh, some old children's fairy tales like Beauty and the Beast. And he says, isn't it interesting that Beauty and the Beast shows us that, that love can transform a beast into a human? He says, isn't that something we see in the Bible? That the love of God comes to fall in humanity and changes us into something new? Chesterton points to the story of Cinderella. And he says, doesn't it, it show us that, that the humble will one day be exalted and the proud will be cast down? Doesn't that echo the Bible story? Even think more recently of movies you may have seen. Think of uh, Star Wars, A New Hope, or The Force Awakens, which was a lot like the first one, wasn't it? Both similar versions of a story of a long-awaited chosen one. Think of The Matrix. Lots of other movies like this. The long-awaited chosen one who emerges from, from anonymity to prominence and rescues a people. Our stories sound a lot like the stories written by the, the Creator. That's no coincidence. It's no coincidence because we're made by Him. It should be no surprise that when we create art, it reflects something of His art. In part, the Bible starts with creation because it can't, we can't afford to, to be unclear about our origins. You see, how we understand where we came from, who we came from, is going to shape the way we think about our own identity, the way we think about our purpose in this world. It's going to shape how we think about the people around us and why they exist. It's going to influence what we think about our own worth, our rights, our responsibilities towards one another and towards God. So in the time we have today, we're going to think about some of the implications of this reality. God is the maker of heaven and earth. We're going to think about the so what of that. If he is maker of heaven and earth, so what? Now, there's almost no end to the implications here, but we're going to look at just three. All right? Three implications. One of them is about us, one of them is about God, and one of them is about all of creation. So one about us, one about God, one about all of creation. I'm going to invite you to open up a Bible to Acts chapter 14, if you have one. And if you don't, there's a, there's a Bible right in the pew in front of you. It's a different translation from what I'm going to be reading, but you should be able to, 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 to read along. And we're going to project these verses on the wall, too, so you can, you can read from there if you'd like. Acts chapter 14, we're going to read from, from verse 8. And just to give you a little bit of context, this is in this scene, two men, Paul and Barnabas, they are messengers of God. They have been commissioned by God to travel through many cities telling people about the God who, who not only created all things, but the God who, 
who, who sent his son into the world to rescue creation, to rescue creation from sin and to make all things new. And so in chapter 14, these two men find themselves in a place that's not so different from the place that we live. It's called Lystra, happens to be in, uh, in Turkey, southern Turkey, I believe. These people worshipped a lot of gods, quote-unquote little g-gods. They, they idolized, it seems from the story, they also tended to idolize impressive people, which is something I think that our culture does a lot of too. So let's read Acts 14 from verse 8. It says here, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. These these are gods, they said. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul, they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Hermes, by the way, was the son of Zeus in Greek mythology. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and they rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good things. He did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day he went on with Uh, Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium, to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. This is God's word. What a story, huh? One thing it teaches us is this. We make terrible gods. This is our first takeaway from this reality that God is the maker of heaven and earth. Our first implication, it's about us. We make terrible gods. Imagine the scene. It's a crowded outdoor space, more than likely. Paul the Apostle, he heals a man who who was born without the use of his legs. But it says, verse 10, he sprang up and he began walking. And the crowd's reaction is to say, we've got gods among us. They, they called him Zeus and Hermes, and the priest shows up to offer sacrifices. Imagine that scene. 
People take out their phones, start recording. It goes viral. Next thing you know, paparazzi are following the apostles around. Video shows up on TMZ at night. It's all silly, I know, but, but doesn't this remind you a little bit of the way that we respond to celebrities, <laughs> impressive people? We get worked up. We may not call them Zeus and Hermes, but we do our own form of worship, perhaps. We exalt, we almost deify people that we find impressive and beautiful. Paul and Barnabas, they, they become unwilling celebrities, really unwilling gods here. But it doesn't last very long because, as, as you and I know, experience teaches us that the people we idolize won't impress us for too long, will they? They, they never quite live up to our expectation. When we see their flaws, we find out about their past. We find out that they aren't exactly who they appear to be. They're no longer gods to us. No longer impressive. Think about people that you used to idolize in the past. Haven't, haven't the names changed over time for you? People you once idolized that now you have much less respect for. You've moved on to, <laughs> to new idols, perhaps, or maybe you've done away with the whole idolatry thing and said, I don't want to worship any, I don't want to look up to anyone anymore. I'm so disappointed by the people that I've put my trust or the people that I've exalted in my own heart. Because at some point, they're going to let you down. Paul and Barnabas here, they let down the whole crowd very quickly. Verse 15, why are you doing this? We are men like you. It's as they tore their clothes. They weren't just like, no, 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 it's okay, it's okay. I'll sign some autographs, but I don't really like the attention, right? They weren't like playing it down, but also posing for pictures. They weren't doing any of that. They tore their clothes and they said, no, your worship is directed in the wrong place. We are like you. Broken. Flawed sinners. Pretty quickly, these folks in Lystra, they went from worshiping to verse 19. It says, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Imagine that. He didn't just grow unpopular. He didn't even just get canceled. He got rocks thrown at his head until he was unconscious and looked like he was dead, and they dragged his lifeless corpse out of the city. All it took was a little persuading from some folks from out of town who came in and said, I don't worship these guys. Maybe you've been on the receiving side of that. Someone exalted you, looked up to you, maybe even idolized you. You were their everything. You thought that would last, and it didn't. Their sentiments shifted away from you. Perhaps we shouldn't expect that to last. Just as we grow disillusioned with others, they grow disillusioned with us. We make terrible gods. In fact, nothing created can be God. And that's why Paul says in verse 15, he says, you should turn from these vain things, that means these worthless things, these fake flawed, disappointing objects of worship. Turn away from them, quote, to a living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
You see, living God means real God. He's a real God because he wasn't created, he creates. And now that has major implications for the way that we view ourselves, has major implications for the, for the way that we see ourselves and others. You may be a great guy or a great gal, but you make a terrible God. You did not create yourself. And so you can't rule yourself. You can't define yourself. Only God can. Sometimes in our culture, I believe we're told that, that we can create an identity for ourselves. Through the things that we do, where we go to school, who our friend group is, what team we join, we can change our look, what career we choose, what we accomplish. In all these ways, we can build or rebuild a new identity for ourselves, construct a self. But fundamentally, you are who God says you are. You can't define or create yourself. He made you. And that means our goal in life is not to construct an identity for ourselves. Our goal in life is to, to know and believe who God says we are. He's the maker, not us. You know, it's funny, in a somewhat contradicting way, I think our culture also sometimes tells us, not only that we can construct and define a self, but sometimes our culture tells us that our feelings define us. What we feel makes us who we are. In every area of life, the one that came to mind to me as I was studying this was the area of sexuality. That who you're attracted to defines you somehow, gay, straight, asexual, and, and maybe not even sexuality, but even gender, male, female, non-binary. And so it seems that it's a matter, we're told, it's a matter of identifying how you feel how you respond to the world, what attractions you experience, and then accepting the, the, the identity that corresponds to that. And if you don't accept that identity, we're told, then you're denying who you are. You're suppressing your true self. If, if you or someone you love struggling to make sense of their own sexuality or their gender. I'm, I'm not trying to shame you. I'm certainly not trying to shame them. I'm also not trying to tell you that the struggle is not real or it's not hard. Here's what I want to tell you. Your feelings don't define you. And there's freedom in that. God defines you. The maker says he made you in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created us and he blessed what he created. So I want to encourage you to not embrace the flawed labels, the flawed human labels that describe you or that seek to define you. Not let your feelings, attractions, desires foundationally define you. Your feelings matter, but they are not God. And neither are you. I want to share a quote with you from Jackie Hill Perry, who's an author, teacher, poet, rapper. She's, she's multi-talented, and she wrote a book called Gay Girl, Good God. And she says this, Confusion comes in 
because we live in a world and a society that has told us that to experience these feelings, and she's talking about particular sexual attraction, same-sex attraction is what she's talking about here. She says, we've been told that to experience these feelings says something about our identity as people. It's who you are. You need to live that out or you're denying, you're suppressing your true self. I want to encourage you, look at what God says defines you. I don't want to belittle the the confusion or the struggle that you're experiencing, but I want to give you this truth. God has told you who you are. Submit yourself to what he says. Whether you're a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, you are intentionally, lovingly designed, and you are called to live, not guided ultimately or strictly by your desires, but by what God has said will lead to your joy, to your flourishing. And he knows. He made you. Humanity has always tried to play God. It just looks different in different eras, and today is no different Some are trying to play God, to redefine sexuality and even the basic realities of gender and sex. I tell you, it's not sustainable. It never is. And it will not lead to joy or flourishing. It will only lead to disappointment and ruin. It won't bring peace, not lasting, but only further confusion. If there's one thing we can know about humanity is this, we make terrible gods. Here's the second takeaway, and it's a quick one. God the maker is good. Yeah, we make bad gods, but God the maker is good. How do we know? How do we know? Well, in this story that we just read in Acts 14, he visits this city through his two apostles whom he sends there, a far-off city that did not worship him. He sends people there to heal. And he heals this man that had been an outcast, had been Ignored, diminished all his life. And then on top, not only do they show up and heal, not only does God send his messengers to heal in that place, but look at Acts 14, verse 16. Verse 16, it says, In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. How do we know that God the maker is good? That he's a much better God than we are? (laughs) Well, he provides good things. Even to those who worship false gods, he provides good things. Even when we reject the gospel, he gives us good things. He is filled with grace. Grace. And the kind of grace that's, that's, that's highlighted here by the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 14 in this section is what, we, what theologians often call common grace. Common grace are those good things that God gives us that are not necessarily safe. It's not just for those who believe in Jesus. It's just the good things that he gives to all the world, like rain and food and the sun that shines on us. We can throw into that bucket of common grace uh, medicine and clothing and close, intimate relationships. Those are all God's grace. They're all evidence of how good he is, even to people who want nothing to do with him. 
He just keeps being good. But that's not even the half of why God is good. Because look at verse 17. It says there, Yet he did not leave himself. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to read verse 17 again. Back in verse 15, after the apostles tell them, what are you doing? He says to them, you should turn from these vain things to a living God. And here's why. We have good news for you. We bring you good news. Good news. You see, God has more than just good things to give us. He, has, he gives us himself. He gives us good news of the reality that we can have him, that we can, we can experience his closeness, his life eternally. You see, God doesn't just have common grace for the world. He has saving grace for the world, saving grace for all who will accept the good news of the gospel, for anyone who will stop worshiping worthless things and turn to Jesus There's more than just common grace. There's saving, deeper grace. And we see it at the cross. You see, if you think about this, if if God's goodness is revealed in the fact that he provided a breakfast for you this morning, how much more is his goodness revealed in the fact that he gave up his son and his son writhed on a cross and bled out for you? Not just to feed you, to get you through the day, but to provide for you a life eternal. You see, the, the common grace of God is just the tip of the iceberg. We can look at this image here. It's just the tip of the iceberg. You know how icebergs work, right? You only see a little bit at the top. But for every little bit of goodness that we see in this world from God, in the love of your family, in the the health of your bank account, in your job, all those little acts of good, they're meaningful, they're big, just like that big iceberg. But if you push in further, if you slide down that iceberg, if you dive in closer, you will find that in God there is more grace and more grace and more grace for those who will believe in Jesus Christ as Lord. God created the world to share his love and to show off how good he is. Sure, sure, he shows us through the good things he gives us, but he has so much more to show us. His deeper goodness will only be known when we trust in Jesus, when we embrace him. Here's the last takeaway from this reality that God is the maker of heaven and earth. One, we make terrible gods. Two, God the maker is good. Three, everything God made is good. Everything God made is good. In Acts 14, the, God's goodness is reflected in the rains and the fruitful seasons and the food that he provides for these people in Lystra. We know all that's good. But, but according to, to 1 Timothy 4.4, everything created by God is good. 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, everything created by God is good. And you know, really, that echoes Genesis 1. 31, where we read, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, what did he say? It's very good. 
He looked at everything he had made. It's all very good. Now, sin, of course, marred that good. Sin, sin warped what God had made good, stained it, but did not completely destroy his creation. Did not eradicate all the beauty. Everything created by God is good. In fact, we, when we, we serve God when we enjoy what he has made with gratitude towards him. We worship God when we enjoy the things that he's given us with gratitude to him. Looking beyond the good thing to God, the better maker and creator. Those things are good as long as we don't make them God, of course. Everything created by God is good. And that, by the way, includes you. You fit into the everything created by God. God looks at you and says, this is good. You are good. Now, now I need to explain, that doesn't mean that you are righteous. It doesn't mean that you are holy. It doesn't mean that you deserve God's acceptance. No, because like me, you've sinned against God. You came into this world ready to reject God, just like I did. You've dishonored him. You've disobeyed him. So, like me, you've worshipped idols. We are like those people in Lystra in all those ways. So, so, so when I say everything God made is good, including you, I'm not saying that you are perfectly morally upright. I don't mean good in that sense. I mean good in this sense. I mean good in this sense. Look at Psalm 8, verses 1 to 5. The psalmist here talks about how Creation reflects the beauty of the creator. How the good creation reflects the good creator behind it. The painting speaks to the majesty of the painter. So he says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And then look at verse 4. He says, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? He said, I look at your majesty and I just feel small. Why do you care about us? Why do you care about me? He says, verse 5, you have made him, although he's small, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and you've crowned him with glory and honor. God has crowned all his created, all of created humanity with glory and honor. We've done our best to reject him. We've done our best to, in some ways, rather purposefully or unconsciously, it's like we want to destroy that dignity. We want to destroy that glory and honor somehow. But God has given you dignity. He has given you worth. And none of that is dependent on what you have done or haven't done. None of that is dependent on what you do later today. That dignity, that worth was given to you by your maker. And it can't be taken away no matter what anyone has done to you either. It's tried to strip you of your dignity. It's tried to bring you low and maybe even destroy you. 
They cannot take away what God has placed upon you. It's true that in the great scheme of things, you are small and so am I, but you matter to the God who made you. Dr. Jessica Meyer is a NASA astronaut, and she, she, she speaks quite a bit about, she, in different contexts, about her experience in orbit. And when asked, how, how did time and space change the way you think about life, she says this. She says, it's really interesting to think about the view, and that's the view from space at Earth. She says, how it changes you as a person. I was thinking about it in two ways. First, I was thinking about how it really makes a lot of people appreciate how precious and fragile the earth is. And, she says, you also realize how insignificant we really are as a species, as a planet, in the scope of the solar system and the universe. And I think that perspective is really valuable. I wish every human could experience it. With all due respect, Dr. Mir, I think she's right and she's wrong at the same time. It's true that we are small and fragile, but we are infinitely significant, infinitely valuable to the God who made us. So because he made you, we can say all of creation, including you, are good. Again, not morally upright, not deserving of eternal life, but there's a good, and a good in a different sense, a dignity, an honor, a beauty that has been marred and dented by creation, but not er- by sin, but not eradicated, and it will one day be perfectly renewed if you will put your faith in Jesus. You're not just worth something if you meet a certain standard, right? If you've got a certain income, you live in a certain neighborhood, you have status, you meet expectations, that's not what makes you worth something. And and if you don't meet those standards and somehow you're less than, you're unworthy of respect, of dignity. No, your worth is intrinsic as a person made in the image of God. My six-year-old daughter and I, and the rest of our family, really, we're we're fans of Encanto, the the Disney musical Encanto. And um, one of my favorite characters in it is the, the... the sister, Luisa Madrigal. If you've watched Encanto, you know who Luisa Madrigal is. I'll show a picture of her here. In one of the best scenes in this movie, not to spoil anything, she, she sings about the pressure that she's under to live up to a certain standard. And we get the sense that her identity is completely built up, in her, it's completely founded on her ability to meet the expectations of others. And, and then she, she sings at one point these words, I'm pretty sure I'm worthless if I can't be of service. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way? Feel worthless if you're not helping enough, if you're not carrying your weight, or if you don't meet some other expectation because you're unemployed, or you're not married, or you don't have money, or these things that you identify in your life that are missing, that somehow you think that because those are missing, my worth is empty. I'm not meeting the expectations of others, or maybe I'm not even meeting the expectations of myself. 
The reason this is so moving, I think, is not because we care so much about Luisa Madrigal, it's because we see ourselves here. There is intrinsic profound worth in you and in all humans, and that's why. That's, and we can hold to the doctrine of depravity. We can believe that sin is in all of us and that none of us deserve to live with God because of our sin. We can hold that with a tight hand and still, at the, on the other hand, hold this truth. There is intrinsic profound worth in you and in every human. It's why human life always needs to be protected from womb to tomb, Always. It's why abuse in every form is an offense against God the maker, even more than it's offense against the creature who's been abused. In fact, if you don't believe in God the maker of all things, I wonder why you believe that things like racism are wrong, or why trafficking humans is wrong, or why murder is unjust. Why? You might say, well, because it hurts people, but why does that matter? Why does it matter whether or not we hurt people? Here's why it matters, because God, the maker, values what he has made, and he has vested in humanity, in particular, with inestimable value. That's where our self-worth is rooted. That's where social justice is rooted. It's why a child's life is precious. That's why, including while it grows in a womb, it's why an incarcerated convict's life is precious, regardless of what that person has done. It's one reason why pornography is so evil, because it uses and it denigrates people who God has crowned with honor and glory. We know, we know that creation has worth and value because God made it. And that includes you. When you make something, you care about it, don't you? But we also know that creation has worth because God refuses to abandon it. He refuses to abandon the good that he has made. That's built into the good news that Paul and Barnabas preached on that day in Lystra. Remember, they, they got stoned. They were almost dead. And then the passage says they got up the next day and they walked back into the city. That's crazy. The tenacity. And then they left for Derby, which was 60 miles away. And then they came back after visiting other cities. And it says they made disciples. They, they, they made disciples in each of those cities. As they continued to press in and tell people the good news of who God is and what he had done for them in Christ. And they began to believe that. And I, find, I would find it very hard to believe that Lystra is the only place they encountered some trouble. They must have encountered trouble in all those places they went. But there was a tenacity in, in Paul and in Barnabas. And that reflects in some small way, some small way it reflects God's tenacity, his commitment to his creation. He made a people and they rejected him. But he pursued, and he pursued, and he pursued, and he became a man in the form of Jesus Christ the Son, and he entered this, this broken, uh, beautiful but broken world, and he suffered, and he died to rescue and to redeem what God had made. Doesn't that show you the goodness of God? Does it move you to love him? And now, right now as we sit here, creation in all of its broken 
stained goodness. It is groaning for what's to come. It's groaning for the day when Christ returns, when every person who lives with disabilities, like that man in Lystra, and every person who carries the weight of suffering and struggle, and when the natural world itself will experience renewal and restoration, what Jesus calls the regeneration of the world, he calls it. You know what that means? That means that creation will be recreated. The new heavens and the new earth will be a place where justice and righteousness dwell. I'm going to close now. I'm going to stop. But tomorrow's Martin Luther King Day, and I thought it would be appropriate. I was going to read this anyway, and then just because it happens to be Martin Luther King's Day, I thought it was all the more appropriate. But he said often, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. The arc of the moral universe, history's trajectory is long. We don't know exactly where it's all going to go, but we know where it ends. It bends toward, and it inevitably ends with this, justice. Isn't that heartening? Isn't that assuring? That history is headed towards somewhere good? That the story that God is writing ends with a recreated world that will all the more brilliantly reflect the majesty of its creator. And it will be populated by a redeemed, glorified humanity who in this life believed in Jesus and in that new heavens and new earth will worship him and serve him and walk alongside him for all of time. And we will more accurately reflect the goodness of our creator as we live in a way that shows off his perfect justice, his perfect generosity, his righteousness. So, Everything, and here's, here's one little takeaway from that before I stop. There, every, everything that you do now to work towards justice and righteousness in your own life, in your community, for others, or for yourself, it's not in vain. It's not in vain because the story is heading towards complete justice and righteousness. You get to participate in that as you work towards those things in the here and now. And every, every setback, every instance of injustice or unrighteousness that you witness that's not the end of the story. You can recover from that because you know where the story's headed and you can keep walking towards that. Someone recently gifted my family a calendar called the Calendar of Racial Injustices. Thank you guys for giving that to us. This, this is a, a calendar that's put out by uh, the people at EJI, the Equal Justice Initiative. And um, it's a really beautiful calendar with pictures uh, throughout, um, throughout American history. Uh, and, and, and it talks, each day on this calendar highlights some racial injustice that was committed at some point in the past. And, and I'm, this is of great interest to me. I really want to read this. But I joked with my family. I said, oh, this is great. I could be angry every day because I'm going to read one of these. And it's just going to make me mad. Every day I'm going to read one and be like, oh, this is so infuriating. But the reason I say I say that jokingly because in a sense there is anger that comes from reading about the atrocities that have been committed against humans. For, for, for reasons of race and ethnicity and many others, but, but because I believe that God is the maker of the heavens and the earth, I don't need to stop with anger. I can actually be encouraged. You see, I can look back at those former previous acts of injustice and say, there will be a day when this will come to an end, where our calendars will be filled with day after day after day of righteousness and justice and freedom.
As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, everything sad will become untrue. And so, New Hope, these words, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of all things, these lines, they invite us to meet the one behind it all. They, they, they help us avoid the confusion about who we are and about the world, and they, they orient us towards his goodness. The Father Almighty, who created, who tenaciously pursues, and who will one day renew his world, and all who turn to him through faith in Jesus. We are invited into that story if we believe in the Son. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are overwhelmed sometimes by the goodness that you show to us in this life, but sometimes we get distracted by it. We get overwhelmed and distracted and, and totally uh, enthralled by the good things we have when we forget about you, the artist behind it all. Or sometimes, Lord, we get so discouraged by the evil we see around us and in ourselves, we get distracted from you. And so we ask that you reorient our hearts. Give us the grace we need, Lord, to behold you as our God. To behold you, Lord. The Father, almighty, maker of the heavens and earth. In Jesus' name, amen.